often I see brands miss the mark there because their messages and their emails, they just don't feel all that human. They feel they're too marketing-y, they're too salesy, or they kind of miss that human tone where it's clear that this was written with, you know, a sales KPI in mind and not a not the subjective of am I building something, am I writing something that's gonna be useful for this person today? So many of these brands, my, our kind of motto at BuzzFeed was we always wanted to under-promise and over-deliver. And I see most brands do exactly the opposite, which is they'll promise you the moon and the stars, and then you get their emails and you feel let down because they're just not delivering on the promise. And it's too bad, like, that's the ball game in the first couple of weeks of like being human and exceeding expectations, especially with newer brand, with brands that are just getting started in that relationship. You know, there's no excuse for not having a great welcome series, not thinking about a great strategy for the first 30, 60 days for a new email subscriber, because that's something you can plan around and build around, and segment around. And so when I see brands, you know, miss the mark on that, you sign up for a newsletter and the next day you're getting these like huge upsells and offers. It's just such a bummer because I want to get to know you first before I'm going to go <laughs> and buy something from you. Today in Inboxing, Dan Oshinsky, CEO and founder of email consulting firm Inbox Collective. Welcome back to another episode of Inboxing. Inboxing is the email marketing podcast where we talk all about email marketing and we have a different guest every week. And this week we have a fantastic guest, someone I've been in touch with for a long time because he's really a top guy in this industry. Um, he's really shot up like a rocket, and as far as I can tell, he's been doing email for a while. But you know, he just got—he started his own email marketing company two years ago. Um, I'll let him talk about that a little bit. But yeah, just let, let's just get started. It's a pleasure to have him. It's a pleasure to to meet him and talk to him, and, and that'll come through. So here we go. Please welcome Dan Oshinsky. Dan, yeah, thanks, welcome. Saying. Thanks, Dan. Sure. Good, good to be here. Yeah, and it's great to have you. I really, really appreciate you. You know, we've been in touch since I think January or something, and or maybe even before that. It's good. Thank God we're seeing. Uh, I hope New York is opening up soon. We were just talking about how in Israel things are getting better, and and like, the economy is finally starting to open up a little bit. And um, there's a overall like hopeful feeling running around, and hopefully that'll spread to other places as uh, as vaccinations go up. And inboxing's official policy is definitely get vaccinated, and we encourage it. Yeah, don't believe any misinformation. I'm vaccinated, no ill effects. You can see my face, I still look good. So uh, definitely get vaccinated. That's enough about that, let's talk about email. So let's jump right into this. So tell, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in email marketing? Uh, like most folks, I went to college for email marketing, went to, no, I, uh, <laughs> like most folks, I, I got into email marketing completely by accident. I. My very yeah, first, like everyone, product. really, like it's really like everyone. Like no one has told me, like yeah, they want to do email marketing, you know. It, and I can tell from my own experience, like yeah, you're right. Like, you know, someone needs to do email, so that's how we become the email people. Yeah, for most, for, for most folks, it was you kind of stumbled into it. It's how I did it. I had a newsletter. My first newsletter I launched in 2012 called Tools for Reporters. It's still going. Some grads of the University of Missouri, where I went for college took it over and are still running it. It did what you think it would do. We showed shared tools for reporters that they could use. There were all sorts of things that I was playing around at the time. I had a startup called Story.us and where I was doing kind of long form reporting with a team out in Missouri. And we were just testing out lots of different tools that were going to be useful for reporters and just thought, well, you know, I should have a place to, to share this stuff. I've tested all these different things. There's some stuff that I like. Be a nice way to share what I'm learning with other folks. And was just always impressed with how useful email was. You know, that newsletter started as a as a simple MailChimp kind of newsletter. And at the time, you know, I grew that thing to maybe a couple hundred subscribers after a few months. And I was amazed at, you know, if, if I put something on Twitter where I might have, you know, 500 or 1,000 followers, nothing would happen. I'd share a tweet. Nothing would happen. There'd be no engagement. There'd be no response. Or you're just talking into the void. And I put something on Facebook and nothing would happen. And I would send an email out to 500 people and like several dozen people would write back to me and people were inviting me for coffees and I was getting job interviews. And it's like, oh, this email thing works. Like even with a really small audience, I immediately start conversations because people want to actually talk and people 
You know, I send that email. It comes from me. It's clearly written by me. It has a voice and a personality and has a perspective. And people will utilize that reply feature. When I ask them, like, have you tested this? What do you think? Write back to me. They would hit reply. They would write back. And that was really exciting. So when I met the folks at BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed was getting into the, you know, into the space where they were investing a ton in, in original reporting, original content. And I did a lot of long form kind of magazine style reporting on the internet. That's how we'd gotten connected because they were getting into that space too. We just had a really nice conversation with those, with, you know, with the team there. And they said, we think you're smart. They had tended to hire a lot of people who had weird kind of side projects. I had weird side projects. And that was kind of the BuzzFeed test. Like if you had a weird podcast or a <laughs> blog or a Tumblr, like you probably fit in really nicely in BuzzFeed at the time. And they're like, you have this like weird email side project and you have this like weird long form thing you did in the Midwest. Why don't you come back to us and pitch us on some idea and maybe there's an opportunity for us to work together. So I thought about it and came back and said, you know, email is kind of the original source of sharing on the internet. BuzzFeed is all about telling stories that we want people to share. It seems to be a pretty logical fit. We should give it a shot. The other thing we had in mind at the time was at some point, there's the chance that Facebook or Google or Twitter or one of these algorithms might change the rules. And well, we should build up our audience that we actually own and control and have a relationship with because if one day Facebook just says, we've decided you have a million followers, but we don't want to show the, you know, your content to your followers anymore. Well, that's, you, know, it's, you have an audience on Facebook, but it's really Facebook's audience. Whereas with email, it's, you know, if we get someone to give us our email address, it's, it's our audience. It's a, a relationship that we have, we control, and that's really, really exciting. So BuzzFeed liked the pitch, and I came on board and started with, with email back in 2012, built the email team there, which from just me to a, a team of five uh, over the course of a couple of years, and then got hired at The New Yorker to build out the email strategy there. They had discovered that the number one way people became you know, new paying supporters of, of, of The New Yorker, new subscribers, was through our email list. They read our site. They signed up for a newsletter. They read a lot of The New Yorker that said, this New Yorker stuff is great. I want to get more of this. They hit the paywall and they say, you know, I, I want to keep reading. There's more stories for me to read. So they subscribe. And so they brought me on to help figure out how to build out the email strategy there. And then two years ago, left and started this thing, Inbox Collective. But I'm sure we're going to get into that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know how soon we're going to get into that, but we'll jump to the next thing. If you want to keep talking about Inbox Collective, yeah, like the, the, brief, the, brief, the brief spiel on that was I started this thing in 2019 called notanewsletter.com where I was at The New Yorker, and I wanted to find a way to share what I was learning and reading about email with other people because I would get lots of questions and I had a full-time job and wanted to find a way to do it in a way that wouldn't spook Condé Nast, the parent company of The New Yorker. Because if I announced that I was launching some like big blog or resource, they would be like, hold on, like you have a full-time job. But as a Google Doc, like Google Doc wasn't going to be like threatening to anybody, wasn't going to be scary to anybody. It's just like a weird Google Doc that I published. Like no one cared about this. And so I launched it and then launched an email alert tied to it. So people would come back for the next month and told my wife, like, if I get 10 people to sign up for this thing, it's in January, 2019. It's like, if I get 10 people to sign up for the email alert, I'll do another one of these in February. And 400 people signed up. First oh my God. So I was like, oh, I guess people want this. This is useful. Cool. I kind of always knew that there was there was a need for this in the industry. There weren't a lot of great resources now. You know, even now today, there are podcasts like this. There are more resources. There are more folks investing in newsletters. At the time, there was very little. And it was really just some blogs by MailChimp will have their blog where they'll talk about like e-commerce strategies, but nothing for people in the editorial space. So I wanted to kind of build that. And then uh, so I you know, became like this accidental Google Doc publisher. And then after a couple months, people started reaching out and saying, we love the stuff you're doing. Do you ever do work with individual companies? Uh, like we can use some help with our email strategy. And it's like, oh my God. Oh, I have a full-time job. Like I'm not looking to do that. And then the requests kept coming in. It's like, oh, there's a real need here. This Google Doc is growing. People keep asking me for help. I should be the one to help them out. So then I launched Inbox Collective two years ago. And now this is what I do. I, I work with newsrooms, nonprofits, some brands too, to help them figure out how do they grow? How do they build an audience? And how do they turn that audience into, into revenue? All right, fantastic. I mean, that that's so fascinating, really, how your newsletter, you know, bore your company, <laughs> right? It's it's truly a case where I built this thing and built an audience, and then over time, the audience. And so much of the advice that I give, I mean, frankly, if there's one piece of advice that people take away from all of this, it's 
the more you listen to your audience, the more you start conversations with your audience, the better you're, you will do in the long run, no matter really what you want to do. So much of what I do with teams when they're trying to think about stuff like, how do I build the right pop-up on my website to convert readers? Like, What's the marketing language? Like, do we need to go out and hire some like branding expert to help us figure out the tagline? Because in their head, there are a lot of brands who are thinking like, oh, we need something like Coca-Cola. Uh, we, need, we need like a tagline or a line that's like, you know, they're, they're thinking of the famous Coke ad, but, like they're on the hill. And I want to want to want to buy the world of Coke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how this works. In reality, the way it works is if we have a little bit of an audience, let's go and start talking to that audience, ask them questions, survey them, figure out what they like about our newsletter and what they like about our brand. And then based on what we hear over and over again, let's go out and test different marketing messages on the site to see what converts best. If readers tell you, you know, for instance, with my newsletter was people told me the thing they wanted was help understanding from a really high level where they should invest their time and resources to get their most out of their email strategy. And that aligned really nicely, it turns out, with a consultancy because it came back to things where people were saying like, I want to make sure I'm not spending my money or time or resources in a stupid way. I want to spend my, I want to make sure that if I have a little bit of money to spend on email marketing, that I put it into the right places. I invest in the right products. And all right, just listening to my audience and having them tell me, you know, we need help with this, we need help with this, helped inform pretty much all the decisions I've made in terms of how I market my newsletter, how I built the audience, the content that I produce, even the services that I offer for not a newsletter. Most of them came out of just really deep conversations with my audience, listening to them and hearing, you know, for instance, I do a lot of work with teams where they tell were nonprofit newsrooms and nonprofits that are small, that don't have a lot of a lot of money. And I do this coaching program with them, 12 calls over the course of a year, a call a month. And I've built up this kind of curriculum to, to kind of work them through a strategy. And because I've done it now a couple dozen times, <laughs> I'm able to offer them services at a really low rate because I've, I've kind of built a program that's a mix of curriculum, but also some one-on-one. But it came entirely out of listening to the audience. And, you know, these organizations coming to me and being like, we're a really small, not-for-profit newsroom in Evanston, Illinois, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like, <laughs> we need help, but we don't have that much money to spend. Is there a way you can help us? And I said, oh, yeah, let me think about it. And the more I kept hearing these sorts of themes, the more I had to go, all right, well, how do I build a part of my business? Or how do I build a part of not a newsletter that's going to serve them? So much of email success is just listening to the audience and then trying to serve them in the way that, you know, they're telling you, like they're crying out for help around for certain things, <laughs> listen to them and then build things to serve them. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> that, wow, move on. So what are the things that you see in the inbox that make you cringe? So I see a lot of stuff that makes me cringe on a daily basis, to be honest. When I look through my email, I see more things that upset me than things that excite me. Every once in a while, because frankly, more brands are doing a lousy job than brands doing a good job, unfortunately. Right. Brands that they overask, they ask you too frequently for, you know, we want you to buy something. They ask you over and over and over again with no segmentation, with no eye towards, you know, am I engaging with your with your brand in any sort of real way? Like, am I reading your stuff? Am I opening your emails? If so, and I'm not buying, maybe you do want to ask a second time or a third time to convert me. But a lot of times what I'll see is brands that just ask over and over again. There's no segmentation. They're not looking about whether or not I'm engaged or not. Do I like the product? You know, everyone's had this experience where they go out and buy, you know, a pair of jeans from a from an e-commerce company, from a retailer, and then they get 50 emails in the next 50 days that are like, <laughs> buy more stuff from us. Like, no thanks. Like, you know, I don't. As a dude who is not terribly fashionable, like I don't buy clothes all that often. So when I buy a pair of jeans, it's not like I'm going to turn around and buy another one next week. Like give me another year and I might buy another pair of jeans, but they don't look at that. They just start keep sending me over and over deals and sales and offers. Like that one time interest isn't correlated with my like long-term interest in the brand. So I see brands fail to recognize like those clear signals. Am I engaged? Am I interested? Do I want to hear more from this? And they're not tweaking my messaging. They're sending me more tailored messaging based on what I'm interested in or kind of ramping down what they're sending to me to, to match the cadence of what my interest is. And I see a lot of brands that most of the organizations that I work with, before we get to a level 
of personalization, we first start by building in personality and voice. So we go back and we, we take it down to like the studs of email, which is like email is a one-to-one communication tool. And at some point, if you're a big organization or big brand, you're trying to figure out how to do that one-to-one personalization at scale. But to start, I just want to think about the one-to-one. Can I write welcome emails in a way that is personal, that asks questions, that engages with my readers? Can I start real conversations? Can I think about being as human as possible in my asks, as long as it aligns with what your brand does. And often I see brands miss the mark there because their messages and their emails, they just don't feel all that human. They feel they're, they're, they're too marketing-y, they're too salesy, or they kind of miss that human tone where it's clear that this was written with you know a sales KPI in mind and not a the not this objective of Am I building something? Am I writing something that's going to be useful for this person today? So many of these brands, my, our kind of motto at BuzzFeed was we always wanted to under-promise and over-deliver. And I see most brands do exactly the opposite, which is they'll promise you the moon and the stars, and then you get their emails and you feel let down because they're just not delivering on the promise. And it's too bad. Like That's the ballgame in the first couple of weeks of like being human and exceeding expectations, especially with newer brand with brands that are just getting started in that relationship. You know, there's no excuse for not having a great welcome series, not thinking about a great strategy for the first 30, 60 days for a new email subscriber, because that's something you can plan around and build around and segment around. And so when I see brands, you know, miss the mark on that, you sign up for a newsletter and the next day you're getting these like huge upsells and offers. It's just such a bummer because I want to get to know you first before I'm going to go and buy something from you. Yeah, for sure. And I think the next question you already like really covered, which is like, why is email such an amazing platform? And I think you've answered that and then some. It's all about relationships. Email is so much about really starting these conversations and the brands that lead into that do a really, really good job. It can be scary at the start. It's frankly really frightening for a lot of organizations, a lot of individuals and creators who are starting with newsletters to say like, write back to me because I mean, I see this in the news world reporters are used to getting the worst emails in their inbox. Reporters are used to the, or, you know, on Twitter, in their email, they write a story and the feedback they get from readers is often really negative. And so when I work with teams, I'm like, we're going to start to invite people to write back. It's like, oh, no, no, you haven't seen my inbox. Like, no, no, I've seen these. They're terrible. But I promise, like, if we start a conversation, if we're friendly, if we're upfront, if we use our voice, like, people aren't going to write to you I mean, some people will, but for the most part, like people are going to write to you in a friendly kind of way because you're inviting a real conversation. And it's a, it's a switch that people have to flip. They have to get over that fear of like, what happens if somebody writes something that's a little bit, you know, mean to me, they might, the people, not everyone's going to love your brand, but be open to the conversation, be willing to actually talk back. It's not just, you ask a question, they roll back to you and it goes into an email folder when I was at the New Yorker. Every single day, the first thing I did when I got into the office was would check the folder of all the email replies to the newsletter, and I would go through one by one and write back to every single one of them. And some of them were really polite, and they would get nice notes from me. Some were very rude, and they would still get a nice note from me. (laughs) Often the people who got a note back when they were rude to me, and I'd write, you know, like, hey, thanks for your feedback. I hope you give us another chance, or I hope you'll consider this, or maybe more to read this. Often people would write back to that and be like, oh my God, I was I was having a bad day. I was venting. I didn't realize an actual person was going to read this. It's like, you know, we read all of these. And the theory it's was... on the wall now. Yeah. But it's, it's the theory at the time, and it's still true, was, you know, a place like the New Yorker was supported overwhelmingly by reader revenue. Paying supporter, paying subscribers is why the New Yorker gets to do the reporting and storytelling and art and design that it does. And it couldn't exist just on advertising. So it just made sense that they should be the first people we talk to on a day-to-day basis. Like, they power our newsroom. We should put them first. Start conversations. It's a small thing, but it was a really meaningful thing for us. I loved your Twitter story, you know, when you started. You told the story about how, like, you post the same thing on Twitter, and but you would email, you get... You know, it's one to one. So you're saying it's all about that relationship. Oh yeah, it was. It was a real. It was such a light bulb moment for me. Like, why am I wasting all this time on Twitter? when nobody wants to have these conversations, all the conversations that I liked having too were over email because the people would be way more personal. They'd be way more open to sharing stuff because it's not a 
with Twitter sometimes or Facebook, sometimes it's a public performance. And with email, it's just a conversation. It's just two folks talking. And so people would tell me things or share things or be more open in a way that they wouldn't be in other platforms, which is great. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Like you're, you seem to be a step ahead <laughs> with every question. So let's just jump to the next one. All right, so how, how can companies build their list building in a so positive way? It goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about the idea of under-promise and over-deliver. So anything that you're doing, whether you are using pop-ups of your website, lead magnets, whether you're using contests or referral program, whatever you're doing, you're trying to set a level of expectations for readers about what they are reasonably going to get and then figure out how do we exceed that? How do we do something else on top of it that's going to make them say, I didn't expect this. You guys are treating me in a way that you know other brands or other organizations haven't done before. So a small example, let's say you're building a lead magnet. Let's say you're a, a B2B kind of company and you're building a lead magnet to try to serve your audience. If you're building that lead magnet, you're thinking about you know, okay, there's lots of these out there, you know, download this PDF and you'll get this in your inbox. And often you download it and you get it and you go like, that's it. That was the thing. It was like a one, it was, you know, like there wasn't, it wasn't that detailed. I can't believe I gave you my, I got this experience the other day. I saw this great pitch for, uh, it was an email related product and they were, they promised these amazing insights. And I was like, oh, this seems really, really interesting. Yeah. Like I happily gave them my email address and then I downloaded the report and it was two pages and they had promised in their marketing language, like we're going to reveal this, this, and this. And none of it was in the PDF. This is none of it was there. The PDF was just a pitch for their company. And it's like, Oh man, this is such a bummer. Like you, you guys had just done the thing that you had said you were going to do. If you had, you, they said like in the marketing language, we're going to prop, we're going to give you, you know, these three things. If you had done that and done one more thing on top of that, they had a reader for a long, long time in me because I would have been like, this is really impressive what they're doing. They promised me this. They delivered on that promise. They gave me even more than I asked for. I learned some stuff. And instead, I left and just thought like, Man, I, just got a, I just got a sales pitch. I felt, it felt like dirty. It felt like I had to shower afterwards. And so if you're building out you know, a lead magnet, how do you exceed people's expectations? That might mean... That it's a really deep dive, that like, you know, PDF of resource. It might mean that you're actually building out instead of just like a one-off downloadable resource. Uh, maybe you're turning, a, you're building out like a drip series on your email, on an email campaign. It's so like, hey, over the course of the next five days, we're going to give you like actionable tips and advice to talk you through the strategy. You're going to learn some stuff. How can you do something that's a little bit different to make sure that people get what they understand? Like if I'm going to give, my, give you my email address, that's a really valuable thing. And I want you to blow me away in the first couple of days and weeks, like really show me that you're listening, that you want to provide me something of value because that's when you have the chance to win me over. So that means your lead magnets have to be really, really strong, downloadable guides, drip series, that sort of thing. If you're running a contest, you know, I'm going to get a great welcome series afterwards that introduces me to the brand and make sure that I understand, you know, how this relationship is going to work. If I'm doing a, a pop-up on your website, pop-ups are hugely valuable. They can be done in a way that's very annoying. You have to be mindful of you know, trying to optimize for both reader experience and conversion. So if you're on the site, you know, if you go to a website and the first thing you get is that pop-up, that's really annoying. Like, let me read a little bit. You're trying to find that balance between like, how do I like, read your resources, use your site, learn your story? but then also get converted in a point where I'm kind of ready to, I know enough that I'm, I'm ready to convert. How do you optimize every part of that pop-up from the design, the marketing language, even the call to action button so that it feels tailored to me. And then how do I make sure that the experience afterwards with the welcome series with my first couple of days feels super, super valuable where I'm getting tons of value from an organization. You know, any organization should be thinking really carefully about something like a welcome series too, because that's, that's part of the list growth process. It's getting an email address is just the first step in the journey. If you don't then nurture that reader, if you don't actually take the time to make sure they're welcome and greeted in the right way, then what you're going to see is you know, someone downloaded that lead magnet of yours. And then the first three days of emails were lousy. And they're like, all right, well, I got what I was, what I could out of these folks. And they just unsubscribe. So then you see these things where people, they're like, 
you grew our list in a huge way. And then they all disappear. It's like, yeah, because you didn't take the time to greet them. Part of it's not just about getting them in the door. You have to then continue to build a relationship after they're there. Otherwise, they're just going to drop, you know, drop off. Right. And it's amazing to me, really, like how many companies are just not understanding that. You know, like I once I interviewed at a company which was getting tons of leads. You know, and that was their whole thing with leads, 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 leads. But then they're losing millions of, you know, no one's engaging and like drop off, what are they called? Churn. Churn, it was like insane. And it's not surprising because it's exactly what you're saying. They didn't develop any relationship. There's no welcome. So it was just like, okay, we got your lead. Yeah, we're going to pass it on to someone else. And, you know, and that was like it. Part of that too, though, is a lot of the real times that happens is because companies aren't using the right metrics to measure success. So something that I got really lucky on when I started BuzzFeed is I worked for this woman, Dow Wynn, who's, who's now the publisher of BuzzFeed, is one of, I think, the smartest people in media. And Dow really impressed upon me. It's like, there is no silver bullet metric. It's not just one thing that we optimize for. With a newsletter strategy, we're thinking about things from a couple different buckets so we can understand success. Like a lot of the clients that I work with, will look at, you know, four big buckets. We'll look at engagement. We'll look at growth. We'll look at traffic. Or sorry, we'll look at engagement. We'll look at growth. We'll look at revenue. And I'm blanking on one. Oh, uh, habit. It's early in the morning and I haven't had my coffee yet here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll look at things from a couple different buckets. And we'll go, all right, engagement. What are our metrics there? You know, open rate, click to open rate, replies to our newsletter. We'll look at uh, monetization. We'll say in the revenue, like, all right, ad revenue from this newsletter or subscription revenue or churn. Like our, our newsletter subscribers, our paying supporters, also newsletter subscribers. So they're hanging around for a long time. We'll look at traffic. Um, we'll look at habit. Are people opening our newsletter on a, on a habitual basis? And we're trying to look at a couple different things because over time, if we have five or six or seven metrics, it's going to mean that we get a better picture of whether or not our email program is working correctly and our newsletters are working correctly. So often when you see an organization that's, that you see that like super high rate of churn, it's because the only metric they're looking at is you know new email signups or conversion rate on those like lead magnets or pop-ups. That's the only metric that matters. We just want new leads in the door. No, that, that's just part of the puzzle. Like, If you're not also looking at the, the long-term engagement piece, then you're missing a huge, huge thing with your email strategy. So as you're building your list too, you have to be thinking about, do we have the right metrics in place that we can measure so that way we know the things will, that are working are actually working? Otherwise, it's this is great. We got 20,000 new leads on our, you know, our lead magnet this month or our pop-up this month. Like Things are working, but you might look in the back end and go like, no one's opening these emails. No one's engaging with us. The drop-off is huge. We're losing everybody. And, you know, but if you look at just the one metric, it's like, oh, we're a massive runaway success. You got you to look at <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. It's uh, the macro is very, very important, especially when it comes to email. Yeah. Sorry, moving on. So talking about churn, like, you know, how, yeah. you know how, obviously you haven't been doing a great job and a lot of people are moving away. So, you know, how do you prevent that? Like, or how should you say you've been doing the spammy kind of practices or just sending bad emails? You want to, you realize you want to change, you want to, you know, in a, in a, in a Jewish word, say, do tshuva, you want to return, you want to do a better job, you want to make it better for your subscribers, you, you know, so now you have all these people that haven't engaged with your emails in a long time. Is there a way to, you know, to engage them, to get them back? Yeah. So a couple things to keep in mind. One is it's really helpful, especially as you're trying to you know, kind of audit your email strategy. Look, if you can track where those unengaged subscribers are coming from. That's one thing that might be really crucial because it may turn out that the subscribers you're getting might be coming from a source. Like for instance, you might be spending a lot of money on paid acquisitions, you know, acquiring subscribers via say Google and lots of folks are coming in, but they're not engaging. So it might mean that the way you're marketing to them might not be right. Or you need to go back and build out a custom welcome series or custom journey a double opt-in process just for those subscribers. That's one thing to keep in mind. But in terms well, of- Well, that just brings up another point, just, you know, just you pointed out, but maybe just to highlight a little bit, is tracking. Just tracking. You know that right. your subscriber came from the Google ad or, you know, or your Facebook ad or whatever you're doing. Yeah. No, because it, it absolutely, it often turns out where you discover there's, you know, high disengagement. Well, where do they come from? Oh, well, actually people who came via this big contest that we ran- this happens a lot, especially in the kind of the, the the news world that I see or brands that'll run these big contests or giveaways, you know, 
win a trip to Alaska if you see it, and then they, they get signed up for a newsletter and people start getting these emails. They're like, where did these emails come from? I don't remember signing up for this. And they disengage. They're like, oh, okay. Hey, all these people who came to this contest are disengaging. So we need to think more carefully about what we want to do after someone enters a contest, how we promote this thing correctly to them. Do we need to welcome them in a certain way? Do we need to build out some custom flows to support those sorts of readers. So tracking is one part of it. In terms of win back, there's a couple of things that I, I'd encourage people to think about. One is the sooner you start with the win back process, the easier it's going to be. So if you wait, for instance, until six months or 12 months after someone's disengaged to try to win a subscriber back, you're going to have really low rates of success. If you try to do it at 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, you're going to have a much higher chance to win people back. Another thing is, any sort of win back emails, just be direct as possible with your audience. I see a lot of places that try to get really cute with the kind of messaging. They seen folks who who send these emails where the email will just be like a winky face emoji and nothing else. You're like, what the hell is this? And then you open it and you're like, oh good, I'm so glad you're so excited to get my emails again. You're like, no, no, no. I just like didn't know what this bizarre <laughs> message in my inbox was. I, that, that wasn't a signal. That was me just confused. And so the more direct you can be, the better. Uh, you know, with a lot of organizations that I work with, for instance, if you're a news brand and you have a daily email, one of the first things I tell them is, well, we should launch a weekly newsletter too. You launch a daily, let's launch a weekly as well. So we can give people a chance to opt down. You've been on our newsletter list for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. You're not engaging with their daily. We should reach out and send you a subject line like, are we sending you too many emails? Or do you want to change your email preferences and say, hey, we know you're busy. We know there's a lot happening in the world. Would you rather get a weekly email from us? Click this button. You can opt down to a page that might make sense for you. The more you can be upfront and direct and friendly, the better. And the other thing too is it's okay to let people go. If you are building out a, you know, a, a re-engagement series, maybe an opt-down email, some email around top-performing content you might have missed. If you're trying to treat people in a way that is respectful and they don't engage, you're allowed to let them go. It's okay. You don't retain everybody. And, you know, even at the New Yorker or, you know, the New Yorker where our content was really good at BuzzFeed, you know, our joke was we had a newsletter called The Speaking Cats, which was a great newsletter. It did really, really well for us because people identify as cat people and love cats and aligns really nice with what BuzzFeed did. And even on the This Week in Cats newsletter, which had amazing open rates and was a huge list, we still lost subscribers. I didn't think we could lose subscribers to a newsletter like that because we literally just once a week sent you like the best cat content on the internet <laughs> to people who were like hardcore fans of cats. But we still lost folks because, you know, their lives are busy or we didn't deliver on the promise that they were expecting or maybe we didn't give them enough cats or I don't know, for any you know, number of reasons people like unsubscribe. It's like, man, we're sending people cat videos and we're still losing folks. Not a ton, but we would lose subscribers there too. And so everyone loses email subscribers. It's just kind of part of the process. It's okay to let them go and just keep them on our list and then see you know, six months, 12 months from now, we have this huge segment of our list, which is disengaged. And that's starting to drag down our inbox placement or our emails are landing the spam folder because Gmail or Yahoo or Outlook thinks like nobody opens these emails anymore. Like these emails must not be good. Let's let's send them spam. You know, but it's okay to let people go. Be mindful. Try to send them some emails to win them back. Be really direct with those email asks. Be super upfront. Don't ask them to do 17 things. Ask them to opt down to a lesser cadence of email. Share your best performing content. But if you let them go, it's all right. All right. So what are your top five tips? I mean, you probably did four at least already, but let's put them in order. Honestly, I don't know if I have a top five. There's really two things that I, I could come up with a top five. There's honestly, there's two <laughs> I'm sure you could come up with a top ten, but I'm not going to throw out. I'm not going to your arm here, but he just, you know, honestly, there's only two things that I tell every brand that they have to think about. And it's one is every brand should be more mindful about how you welcome your new subscribers and what you do in the first 30, 60, 90 days to greet your subscribers because most places miss out on that opportunity. They don't do a good enough job. They send just a single welcome email. They're not thinking about how we, how we greet people properly. And it's a huge missed opportunity. And the second, and I mentioned it earlier, is to be as human as possible in your emails, to engage people, to actually try to start a conversation with them if possible, and really focus on relationship building. So that might mean, even for a big brand, 
know, I, I love seeing brands where, you know, the founder might reach out to me two or three days after I sign up and send a personal note about why they started this thing or what they're passionate about. It gives me a sense of what makes them tick and what makes their company unique. I love when a news brand will go and introduce me to a couple of writers on their team so I get a sense of kind of the mix of expertise and personality. Uh, I really appreciate when organizations have a more personal touch to their emails or when they try to add little bits of personalization in the email for me that's like small and thoughtful. Um, you know, I signed up, for instance, via a particular lead magnet and I'm going to get some stuff in my welcome series or in a, you know, an individual newsletter that might be tailored to that, that interest. I told you that, you know, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, if I sign up for a marketing newsletter, I told you I'm really interested in email marketing content. Like I might, even if it's not really known to me, like have, there might be some dynamic content in there that's shown that says, Hey, this, you know, if a reader is really interested in email marketing, show them this story as opposed to this story where things just feel like they're doing some stuff to, to, to serve me. If you can build relationships, build conversations, and really focus on kind of welcoming readers, those are the, to me, that's the most important thing when it comes to email marketing. And I guess if I'm going to throw in a third, it's, it's try to pick from a couple different metrics. Don't just go and say, you know, the only metric for us is open rate, because that's just such a missed opportunity. Look at, you know, long-term retention, look at your, you know, your, where your revenue is coming from with email. Uh, think about different sorts of metrics out there that are going to be useful. So that way you get a better picture of whether or not your email list is really healthy and growing. If you just optimize for one thing, often in the long run, those are the brands that at the end of the year look back and go, we didn't really, like, really achieve the things we wanted to with email. And it's because they weren't measuring the right things for success in the first place. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to share your email that you send them with, you know, the month, the, not a newsletter, monthly email. Like what kind of numbers do you have there? I mean, because you force the click. There's nothing to see in the email except to click to see the new. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that is totally by design for sure. So, you know, everyone who's clicking that. Yeah. Uh, so I what mean, does that look like? Is that like 50% click rate at least? Yeah. <laughs> so what, typically what happens on those, so not a newsletter is, it's funny. A lot of people expect that the email list is actually bigger than what it is. It's kind of a secret society almost because you have to, in order to find out about not a newsletter, it's interesting. Even though my this thing that I publish is a Google Doc, Google doesn't index. Yeah, so it doesn't. So <laughs> it's a thing where if you search for it, you'll find blog posts that I've written and see stuff that other people have written about it. But you won't find not a newsletter listing. It's kind of invisible, which is fun. So you have to either know about it or have someone tell you about it. And I, I kind of like it that way, to be honest. It's it's a fun little secret thing that if you stumble into, you're like, oh what is this and where did this thing come from? And like, also why are there 17 random people on a Tuesday night in, you know, in April reading this random Google doc and what the heck is this? And where, you know, like, where did this come from? It's kind of like a spaceship, like that lands on your front lawn. You're like, what, what is this? And where did it, I don't, I like it that way. I, I, I um, wonder if there's anything else, other content, you know, and if, if maybe it's the most popular Google doc in the Google docket. <laughs> you know, I have no like, idea. I would, I, Is anyone I else know, using it I, that I, way? I, I would love to look. Google gives me no data on. I get no data in terms <laughs> of what people and like how many people open it, how long they spend on it, and I actually don't really mind because it helps me optimize for the thing that I care most about, which is not clicks, but the relationships. Like what I really, op, what I really care about is when people sign up for the email alert tied to not a newsletter and I ask them questions, the welcome series, do they write back to me? Do I start the conversations that I want? And not a newsletter for me, the metrics are like, am I starting conversations? Am I getting new clients ultimately from the Google Doc? Uh, am I meeting interesting people in the email world like, like yourself who are doing smart things in other parts of the world? Like to me, this is one of the most exciting things. Like I live in New York and not a newsletter has been this amazing portal to meet readers really truly around the world there are not a newsletter readers now in something like 50 countries and on a you know monthly basis i'll have conversations with readers in on basically every continent on earth and which is really really fun like that this weird kind of thing is is reaching folks but the newsletter itself reaches around six a little more than six thousand people every single month a little more than 50 percent of people open it and a little more than 50% of people who open the newsletter click on one thing. I also know a lot of folks 
who tell me like, I don't even open the email because when I see it, I just type in not a newsletter.com into my, into my browser and just go directly uh, there. Just like, it's just like an alert that pops up. Like, oh, it's time to go to the Google doc, which is totally fine because it's not like I'm monetizing that specific email. Like if someone sees that and goes like, it's time to go read this thing, Dan has more stuff for me. Great. That's totally fine. But yeah, yeah, it is built in a way. So that way, the only thing you can do with it is click and go to the thing. I, you can write back to me too, if you'd like, but it, I, right. I don't want to drive well, to I see you're getting a lot of, I mean, I don't know if this is a, a proper gauge, but if you remember, as soon as I got the last one, I just finished my, the actually the most recent episode with, uh, Yadatoria Sprocky, and she told me, though, it's the best thing she sees in email is your email, you know, your email. So, yeah, as I said, that's right away, but it took you like at least a week to get back to me. <laughs> you know, like. It's definitely, <laughs> look, I would not, I, I've had people who've written to me over the last two years and like, I love you publishing as a Google Doc. Should I use that as my like CMS? Should I use that as my publishing <laughs> platform? It's like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't <laughs> want to actually, like, it, this, this is a do as I say, not as I do kind of situation. Like you should build a real website. You should not do Google Doc is not a like true publishing platform. It has a lot of weird quirks. I mean, I, it works for me just fine because I go and I always have three Google Docs at one time. There is the version that I'm working on where I'm building the next newsletter, the next edition. There's the live version, and then there's the archive edition with all the old stuff. And basically, when I go to publish, in fact, I'm, the next edition is going to go live later today. And well, later today, when we're recording this on April 20th, uh, by the time a lot of folks listen to this, it'll be after. But although, hey, if you're listening to this on a, on a later date, I, you could pretend as though it went live just now and feel feel special. But you know, this edition is going live on April 20th, and what I do is I, I take the the upcoming edition, I copy and paste it into the new one. I take the new one, copy and paste it into the archive edition, and that's the whole publishing process. And usually I have a typo or two, and somebody tweets at me or emails me and be like, did you realize that you misspelled, you know, newsletter on page three? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. That was my mistake. And then I go and fix that. No one has to know. But it's an imperfect publishing system. I get no data. But it means also that I, op I optimize for the thing that I care most about, which is like con actual conversations that I start via email. Like I know that I'm doing my job right when people are writing back to me and saying like, I read that thing in your Google Doc this month. Do you have any other examples of this? Or I'm thinking about this. Or, hey, I tried a similar thing. Here's what worked for me. And to me, if I'm getting the replies back, I'm starting the conversations that I want. Like that's the thing that matters most to me as opposed to like, Yep. All right. That was sort of expected. Dan has left the building, uh, but I'm sure he'll be back and hopefully with much stronger Wi-Fi. Hi. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> you lost. You, <laughs> I can tell you this. It's definitely not my end. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what just happened. You were there and then I came back and it doesn't really matter. I, uh, I, I have no idea okay. what happened. I just, all of a sudden, the, the I just disappeared. Anyway, I'm that here. You're back. <laughs> the important thing is that uh, you're back. <laughs> I'll, 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 uh, let's keep going. Yeah, let's keep going. All right. So, yeah, what? Dan's top fit pitfalls and mistakes. So, so <laughs> typos are definitely a thing. Uh, pitfalls, pitfalls and mistakes. I would say one, uh, lousy internet. Uh, I, I highly recommend having an internet in order to do your job as a, you know, like someone in the newsletter world. Highly recommend having a competent internet connection. That's certainly something I would recommend. Stuff that I see that people make mistakes around, these include things like workflow. You know, you're, when you're building an email, you see teams that either they don't have the right checks in place when they're sending a newsletter, or they don't have a checklist. We're sending out this, you know, this email or this newsletter. And what does our workflow look like to build it out as efficiently as possible? Sometimes teams have too many checks in place. An email has to get signed off by 17 different people in a company. <laughs> so any email ends up taking forever to send. And then, you know, if there's any voice or personality or message, like it ends up, you, you lose it all by the time the email actually goes out into the world because so many people have signed off on it or they don't have enough and organizations are like, 
we realized that this one person was empowered to send our emails with no checks or balances. And they sent something that was like off brand or off mission or timed in a weird way, or, you know, it's, it's, you know, today is April 20th. And so in the U S someone in the U S was like, yeah, we sent a, a weed centric email today because it was 420 in the U S and then someone at an executive level was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you can't send like a marijuana reference in our newsletter. Like you can't do that. That's not on brand for us. It's like, why did we empower this one person on our team to make decisions unilaterally? It's in front of us. Um, so I, often workflow is a really big thing that I see. And the other thing is with, it goes back to this idea of like overpromise and underdeliver. Often with subject lines, they don't match up with what the content is. Like I'll get a subject line that'll promise me something. I'm like, ooh, that's intriguing. Like I want to read more. And then you open it and either the content didn't match it or it just felt a little underwhelming. And we had this rule at BuzzFeed. There was, uh, when we talked about this idea of, of headlines, writing headlines, not just for newsletters, but for general headlines, that if you're going to make a claim or a promise in the actual headline, you should deliver on this. If your headline on a story is like, is this the craziest cable news interview ever? Question mark. Like, you should read that story and watch that video and be like, that's the craziest cable news interview I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> you, you shouldn't leave and be like, oh, that was like, okay. Like, I guess that was like kind of weird. As like kind of quirky, like that should be the craziest. If you're gonna make a like an a, like a big promise, you're gonna have a superlative. Like it better deliver on that sort of thing. So I, I do see a lot of brands that make the mistake of they promise you the moon and the stars, and then they underdeliver with subject lines, and that's disappointing too. Because you know I spent my time that if I'm gonna open up something from your brand, I'm gonna open something to your company. Like I should feel like this was really really good, and I'm then the next time they show up in my inbox, like. I have an expectation that their stuff isn't going to waste my time. It's going to be super useful for me. And then I'm going to get something of value of it. So like, don't waste your shots with email. Like every time you send an email, it should be great. And if it's not great, why are you sending it in the first place? <laughs> Love that. And so how much work goes into not a newsletter? Like, is it something that you're building all month long and then it's just copy, paste, send? Yes. Uh, next question. No. <laughs> uh, so the way it works is I will... Like today, I will hit send on the latest edition. Right after the, actually this, this interview is done, I'm going to hit send on this. It'll go out into the world. And then I'll take a couple of days and I won't think about my inbox. And then I'll start working on the next one. So I have this Google Doc and I kind of like delete all the stuff from the old one and get it from scratch. I'll, I'll go. I'm always looking for new stories, having conversations. I'm adding stuff to it. And so it gets built in little chunks. And actually, the song that we did and I'm stealing from back in the day when I was at BuzzFeed, we had a daily news newsletter that went out every morning U.S. time. And it was written by the team in the U.K. But the way oh, it wow. worked was, yeah, yeah. But the way it worked was there were news, BuzzFeed was really cool in that we have news teams around the world. And so there were teams in, who worked on news in New York, in Los Angeles, in Sydney, Australia, and in London. So the news team in New York would start the newsletter and in a Google Doc, and they would hand it over to LA, and LA, something would happen at night, and they would go into the, the Google Doc, and they'd add some, you know, stuff, this happened overnight, yada, yada, and then Sydney would take the baton from them, and they would add some stuff and make some edits, and by the time it got to the UK, there was already something there for them to work from. There were links, there were stories, there was some copy, they would edit it, they would tighten up, and they would hit send, and so it wasn't just you know, this one person in London had to go and start from scratch and figure out everything that happened. Like it was always being built over the course of the day. And that's how this works too. If I've done it where I've like waited too long and then, you know, the weekend before I have to like scramble and be like, holy crap, I have to write 4,000 words this month. And it's just not a feasible thing to do. Like it works best if, you know, every week I take an hour and you know, add stuff over time. I'm on LinkedIn and I'll see someone share something great and be like, ooh, that's really good. Like, I'll go and build something in there. So it gets built in little chunks. So that way it's, it's you know, 20 minutes at a time, an hour at a time over the course of a month. And when I have to go to time, go to publish, then it's not too much work at the end for me to go back, check everything, make sure it looks right. I miss anything and then hit send. Awesome. All right. So this is fun. So what are your favorite brands? Like, who do you see? Like, whose emails do you love opening and why? So when I don't, <laughs> I don't think a lot about 
big organizational brands when I think about brands. I think about people usually. This goes back to a lot of stuff we talked about today about relationships and, and people. You know, I, there are voices who send newsletters who I think are really, really unique. Like I love Anne Handley has a great newsletter and I love the work that she does. I'm a big fan of the Dense Discovery newsletter and what Kai Brock does. He's really thoughtful about how he sends email and why he sends email. Um, in terms of big newsletters, something like Girls Night In, uh, uh, Alicia Ramos and what her team does is awesome. And they're super, super, super thoughtful about what they send, how they build community, providing real value. Those are three that come to mind for me. You know, I will say every once in a while, I'll see a story of a, of a bigger brand that does something really smart. Like I just read the story the other day about a, a, a pharmacy here in the U.S., big pharmacy chain called Walgreens. And they were talking about how they shifted their email strategy around COVID. And it's something that I love. And you really don't see that often, as they said, you know, up until March of 2020, when they would have like a deal or a sale, you know, like, hey, toothpaste is now two for one at Walgreens. This week. Like they would send an email with like the alert emoji, like the siren emoji in the subject line and be like, siren, two for one toothpaste. And like, wow, like, I don't know. I don't think toothpaste like is, is like siren emoji worthy, but for them, it wasn't that big of a deal. But when COVID hit, they went, we can't because like people's lives have been upended by this pandemic. And we exist in the health space. Like people come to, you know, Walgreens for their pharmacy to, you know, to get prescription drugs when they're sick. Like we can't be sending them siren emotion stuff if it's not siren emotion worthy and completely shifted how they use stuff like that. It was really encouraging actually to see their team talk about it. It's like, oh, they're being more thoughtful about how they use things like an emoji, how they use their subject lines. Because again, we don't want to promise someone something that doesn't deliver. Like toothpaste is not siren emoji worthy in 2020 and 2021 with COVID. Siren emoji is good news. You can schedule your COVID-19 vaccine appointment. You can do it right now. You're eligible. Like anything less than that, come on, like let's be more mindful of, of like be more respectful of their time. So every once in a while, I'll see a story like that too and go like, okay. Brands are getting smarter. They're being more thoughtful about how they send emails, what it means, and understanding that at the end of the day, like, yes, if you're Walgreens, you're sending emails out to 50 million Americans, but each of those people, like, you're not opening 50 million email, and 50 million people are opening emails together. They're not seeing the collective experience. It's a one-person thing. Like, they send out 50 million emails, but I'm the only person who sees the, gets the like, who, who, like, receives it and who experiences that email is like, it should feel personal for me. It should be useful for me. And so I do get excited when I see stories like that because it suggests that a lot of brands are starting to be more mindful and more respectful of that inbox and thinking like, how do we deliver something that is truly worthy of their time and that delivers on the right promise for a reader? Right. Yeah, something really interesting about that Walgreens story, it was really about Frazy. Uh, I don't know if you know about Frazy, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, Harry Mom is a busy now, AI platform that, A-B tests like 50 subject lines. And mm -hmm. basically what they did, it got a huge lift with that AI testing to get people to actually get vaccinated. Uh, so they felt like it was worth yeah. the investment. And, and yeah, so good for them. Most of the brands I love reading are small brands. Like they're not giant brands. And having worked for a huge brand, they're very conscious about showing any brand voice. Like they didn't want a brand voice. I mean, like the brand voice was so by now and like devoid of any character even yeah. though like they made up like oh it's this woman and she's she's cool and all this stuff like we're not talking to anyone like what are you talking about like our emails are the most boring dry emails in the world i mean i don't know if that's what's going on everywhere but that's from my experience and you, you know I, in general i just find most brands are disappointed like brands that yeah. i even open often and use their products and make orders, like they should be much more segmented. They should know the ages of my kids based on my ordering product, you know, for the last 14 years. <laughs> it's uh, just as in one example, but people, yeah. People are busy and if you send emails that waste their time, they're probably not gonna give you another shot. You have to really work hard to, to earn your space in the inbox. The inbox is a, is a really special place. They let you in and you have to earn your place there. And 
the great thing about email, the challenge for anyone in the email marketing space is the readers hold all the power. They decide if they let you in. They decide if they can kick you out. And just because you got their email address doesn't mean that you're entitled to a place there forever. You have to earn your spot every single time. And if you disappoint them, they have an easy way to kick you out. They will hit delete. They will hit unsubscribe. So you really have to focus on on over-promising, like over-delivering on that promise, on being unusually useful, on being super targeted, on building the relationships. Because otherwise, like people hit unsubscribe. And once they unsubscribe, it's really hard to win them back. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And I just think one of the other problems, I think, in the email space, and I, I think I read this from Chad White, who we probably both love, but yeah, um, yeah it's that email is a little too easy in some ways. If you're a big brand and you're sending yeah. like to a list of a million, oh, okay, it made only 10 million. You know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, so you know, they, you know, it's always about like how deep is that well? Like if you changed tactics and actually did this personalization, did this, like what would be the, what would be the result of that? I was going to say that the line from Chad is great because something that I see too is people who, when they get started, like I remember when at the New Yorker, we'd have new people work on our email strategy. We were sending out to a million people. New people who were working on our emails when they were hitting send would be terrified because sending an email out to a million people should be kind of scary. It shouldn't be a normal thing that you do. Like, and sometimes if you've been in the space for a long time, it gets really easy to forget about the people on the other end. Like, how many emails are we sending? Oh, we're just sending like 10 million emails today. It's not that big of a deal. And yeah, yeah, we're, you know, you, you, we're sending these emails out, yada, yada. We're going to send them another email tomorrow. Don't worry about it. And like, no, like you, you should kind of come at it with that fear of being like, we're sending an email out to 10 million people. Is this good? Is this, this content worthy of 10 million people? Like you should be a little scared because if you have that kind of fear, that means you're going to be like unusually thoughtful about like, oh, I'm going to double check all the links. I'm going to make sure this content is right. Like, are we sending the right thing? Like there's a lot of people emails to send all at once. Um, having that fear is probably a good thing as you go forward. Right. Yeah, for sure. And what are your off, uh, all, forget, you know, just all time favorite campaigns or newsletters and why? You know, there's, I, I remember the, the emails that I remember most are the ones where there was a result or a learning that we didn't expect. So like one of my all time favorites is at Buzzfeed, we worked with this writer on the editorial team. Her name was Augusta Folletta on this thing called the, the seven day better skin challenge. And Augusta had this idea for this content series that was going to be initially produced as a, just a, a long kind of blog post detailing every day seven kind of simple tips to help you improve your skincare you know, routine. We said, oh, this is really cool. This actually might make sense for a newsletter. Let's figure out how to break up this content into seven Ds of emails that we can send. So every day they get an actual tip. And we'd never tried a drip series like that before at BuzzFeed. And I remember when we pushed it live in the first 72 hours, 25,000 people signed up for our newsletter for this seven-day series. We'd never had 25, this was early days of BuzzFeed, we'd never had 25,000 people sign up for a newsletter in three days. That was a brand new thing for us. <laughs> and at a time where that sort of growth, like for some of our newsletters at the time, like they didn't have 25,000 people on them and we've been growing them for a year. Like this was three days. It's like, holy crap, we did something right. But the fun part about those sorts of emails is we don't, didn't always know exactly what we did right. We just knew that something went right. And then it was up to us to try to go back and figure out what exactly did we do that, that worked so well. In that case, it was really the way we marketed it, but also the format was really, really natural. And through more surveys, through pulling the audience, through having conversations, we kind of figured out how to do more stuff like that. For me, my favorite campaigns are the ones like those where we tried something that was a little bit different and it worked in a really exciting way. And we got to come back to the table and go, all right, we just stumbled into something new. We just discovered something new. How can we figure out more about what worked? Was this a one-off kind of thing? Did we get lucky or did we discover a new format or a new marketing tactic that works for us that we can explore and do more of? Um, that that seven-day better skin challenge is still one of my favorite newsletters just because it was this moment of like, oh, we can use automations in a way that we've never been able to do before. 
and it opened up a brand new world for us that was really, really exciting. That's still one of my favorites. All right, that's that's a great answer. What have you done for the New Yorker? Back, what have you done for both of The way back there was a nice one. I like that one. That was a fun email achievement. Honestly, the proudest, this is this is kind of a cheesy answer, but the, the proudest I get with like the Google Doc right now is when I get an email from a reader. So one thing that I do with my Google Doc is you sign up for my newsletter you know, to get alerted. You go through a welcome series and I invite everyone to set up 30 minutes with me free. Whether you're a big brand or you're an individual, like 30 minutes and I, I you know, I want to offer my time. Some people take it, some people don't. But it's just the goal is let me just be useful and try to help as many people. And so a couple months ago, this, this actually just happened this week. A couple months ago, I had a conversation with a reader. He was growing his newsletter. It's a subscription newsletter product. He was trying to figure out how to grow it. And I suggested some ideas around, actually, we just talked about like something like the Seven Day Better Skin Challenge, a, a drip series of emails to kind of onboard new readers around a theme. And we talked about it and he got excited. You know, it was going to take some time. We traded some emails over the last couple of months. He put it out into the world not too long ago. And I got an email from him this week. Is like the the subject line was like I can't remember exactly what he said. I mean, the subject line was something along those lines of thank you, but like the opening line of email was like that thing that we talked about. It actually worked. It's like here's what happened. Like I put it out into the world, and it's like over the last two weeks I've been signing up people for this newsletter. A couple thousand people have signed up for this series. It's like I've grown my list by you know a certain percentage. It's actually working, and like not only are people coming on, but they're starting to like convert they're coming onto my email list in a real way like this thing works and it's like for me the proudest i get is when i have those conversations with a reader and especially one where it's not like you know this isn't someone who i was gonna have a conversation with with the intent of turning them into a client of mine like just having a conversation to try to be useful and try to be helpful and they put in the work afterwards they they were inspired by the conversation they got a good idea they put in real work to try to build out the strategy and they saw an amazing result. And to me, that's like the most excited that I get. That's like, you know, that that's your 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 kid scores the winning goal in a soccer game or whatever. That's that's you know the, you got the result of the test you wanted. Like when somebody tells me that they put in the time on this, they learned something from the Google Doc or learned something from me, and it worked. That's about as proud as I get because it means that whether or not Inbox Collective succeeds or not in the long run, if my readers are learning from me and are able to go out and build the email strategies they want and the businesses they want because of something they might have learned. That's to me as good as it gets. All right. And then we'll go to the other side of that. So what are your biggest email? And this might be a learning for you, but fash a fashla is a Hebrew word or Hebrew slang. It might come from Arabic. I have no idea. But yeah, but it means a terribly embarrassing thing that you've done. Uh, the first one that I did, and I'll always remember this when I screwed up a subject line, was at BuzzFeed. We had a daily newsletter, and there was a story in our daily newsletter on a Friday. So my first year back in 2013 of doing the newsletter, we had a story, very buzzfeed story, videos of people who did something wrong at work. You know, they were a clerk at a big box store, and they knocked over an entire shelf of stuff. And there was like security cam footage of the shelf falling down. And so it was a weird story of, of people screwing up on the job. And so I needed a subject line for it that was kind of cheeky and fun. And so I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. The subject line will be, you're fired. That was the subject line. Like, but the email came from BuzzFeed. The subject line just said, you're fired. And I thought that would be fun until a whole bunch of BuzzFeed employees, colleagues of mine, emailed me panicked when they got this email that said, you're fired. And they're like, From on, I was getting on the train to go to work and I was on the six train and I lost cell phone reception. And there was just this email that just said, you're fired. And I thought I had been actually fired over, e which for most people at the time was not like totally implausible. They would have just like sent you a note, be like, you no longer work here. Goodbye. We didn't have an HR department at the time. Like it was entirely possible. They would have done that. And yeah, that was one for me is like, Oh my God, a whole bunch of people, my coworkers thought they got fired because I sent an email. <laughs> the readers didn't mind quite as much because they didn't see it that way. But BuzzFeed right, employees were less than thrilled for me. That was that was a big one. I was like, be mindful of what you're sending. You can get a little too cute with the subject line sometimes. All right. And we're wrapping up. You have the floor. Uh, 
please do read notanewsletter.com. If you want more of this, the next edition is about to come out in a second. Keep sending. You know, for me, the, the email, I think, is such a powerful tool. I think it's an amazing thing, but you have to be mindful of the power of it and remember that, you know, ultimately you send emails to serve your readers, not the other way around. If you are smart about email, you build relationships, you think really carefully about welcoming your readers, over time, you can do great things with email. It is an investment. It takes a lot of time, but... I think, I mean, certainly the folks who are listening to this are already believers in email. You know, for us, the biggest challenge that we have in email marketing spaces, there are a lot of kind of haters out there around email, people who don't like the tool. Part of that is because a lot of brands and organizations send bad email. It's your job to send good email and to send stuff that makes people think like, this is worthy of my time. I get excited when I see, you know, your brand's name in the inbox, like, it's your challenge to exceed those expectations. If you do so, you have a chance to do great things in the long run. Keep sending great email because the more that all of us do a good job of utilizing this space, the better the results will be for hopefully all of us in the long run. Thank you so much. Thanks for making time for, for me today. Sure. Well, this is great. And that's our show for today. Really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts and uh, leave a review. If you'd be interested in being a guest on Inboxing, please send me an email at hillelberg.com. And if you have any other feedback, I'd be happy to hear from you.